Okay, how tall are you? How tall am I? I'm about uh, six three. Okay, uh, I, I, I know podcast. two. Right, I know two other client tops, and they're both like six five, six seven. So I think it's the name of tall people. Are all your relatives tall or no? You put Jim and I on top of each other, Jeff. We're barely seven feet. <laughs> then we're six three. <laughs> <laughs> So good. It's good to see you again. It's back. Um, you're back in the Cudlow days. We occasionally would do things together, um, which I thought was a lot of fun. And uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for coming on. Um, for all of you people who don't know, welcome to the Futures Edge podcast. I'm Jim Urio. As always, the brains behind the operation, Bob Iaccino. And today we have a special guest, Chief Global Investment Strategist Charles Schwab, Jeffrey Kleintop. And by the way, one thing I always argue, and we, our podcast is good because we get the best guests. Case in point. Thank you for coming on, Jeffrey. Jeffrey, speed round. It's Friday night. You're going out to the bar tonight. What's your drink? Oh, man. Uh, uh, tonight, my drink is going to be uh, probably carbonated iced tea. I know that's weird, <laughs> but it's a big gym day for me. I haven't gotten there yet, so uh, it's going to be late tonight at the gym, so that's what it's got to be. Wow, we, I, we're years this close to being kicked off our podcast. No booze, talking about exercise, 6-3. You're doing very poorly so far. Yeah. So far, so bad. <laughs> so far, so bad. I'll redeem myself okay. somehow. Yeah, you'll, you'll, I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. Um, so here's, so today's a huge day. You know, I'd like to, we, we joke around and ask questions, but this is the, the last three weeks have been extremely disruptive for a lot of markets. The, if you listen to the, the Fed Fund's futures curve, we are currently in an easing cycle, whether Jerome Powell wants to admit it or not. Um, what do you think are the implications for equities? I know this is a pretty broad question to start things off with. The implications for equities, if we are moving, we are in transition phase from a tightening cycle to an easing cycle, and are we? Well, in general, that would be good news. The question is, you know, how far is that going to go? I think we've seen tech stocks maybe get a little ahead of themselves in the idea that we're going to be cutting aggressively later this year, return to the liquidity-driven environment that really drove stocks over the last 10 years. I think that shifted. I think inflation is going to be bumpy on the way down. That's the word Jerome Powell used when talking about the path forward for inflation. We've seen this in the past. Inflation moves in waves, just like COVID did. And when we get one of those upticks in inflation again, I think it could be coming. We could be seeing a little bit of a, a shake in that confidence that we're now in an easy cycle. Okay, so, so tell me this. I, I posted a thing today. I lived in the 70s. I remember people purchasing, thing, purchasing things today for fear that they were going up in prices tomorrow. I did not believe that anyone pulled purchases forward in this inflation cycle. And isn't that a key element of embedding inflation or am I missing something? Well, uh, I mean, there was a tremendous amount of borrowing. So in a way that's pulling forward consumption. I, I don't know. I mean, I think when you're taking a look at the, the outlook for inflation right now, it's really three components. You got commodities, you got goods, and you got services. Services we know haven't really come down at all, at least the way we measure them. Goods prices have started to stabilize. We're certainly hearing about demand in China helping to support uh, a number of retailers and manufacturers so they don't have to be as aggressive in, in putting forth the price promotions they did back in the fourth quarter. And commodities 
commodities, well, I mean, copper's up 26% off of its lows, right? So, I mean, it's showing some momentum there on this reopening uh, momentum in China, and then maybe a, a less than feared economic downturn in Europe this winter. So I think there's still some embedded inflation in there. It's a long way, I think, till we get even below 4% a handle on inflation. Jeff, is is it Jeff, Jeffrey, Jay Klein? What do you go by? Jay I don't hear the difference. Jay <laughs> okay, um, Any of those so <laughs> There's 1.6 jobs, if you believe the JOLTS numbers, 1.6 job for every unemployed American. So 1.6 to one wages still at least not going down. Is that part maybe of sort of a lack of consumer fear about the current inflation? I mean, we complain about it, but we still spend. So are you seeing any effect on the consumer at all? What's your take on the consumer at this stage? Yeah, so it's jobs and housing, right? Home prices aren't collapsing. Maybe they've stabilized. Maybe they've dropped a couple of places, a percent or two, but they're pretty pretty stable, and that's most people's biggest asset. And then their job, their most important income generator, that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. They're still seeing decent increases. They know the job market is pretty strong, and it's not just in the U.S. You know, think back to January. We had the big blowout jobs number in the U.S. It was, I think, three and a half times the economist's estimates in the UK, the number in January was seven times economist estimates. In Canada, it was 10 times economist estimates. The labor market's strong everywhere you look, including places like Japan uh, and, and China that's bouncing back. So yeah, we've got a globally robust labor market. Again, keeping inflation pressures up. This is nothing like the labor glut that we saw for much of the 2010s or even back to the 1990s when we had the fall of the Soviet Union and all those uh, uh, Baltic republics coming into the global labor pool or from 2001 to let's say 2020 when we had all these Chinese workers come into the global labor pool. This is different. We haven't seen this kind of labor market tightness in many decades. So, okay, so I'm somewhat plugged in to the relatively highly educated 20-somethings based on my two daughters. To me, it definitely feels like everything has changed within the last couple months. And my daughters and their friends seem to be a lot more worried about employment. Some of them lost their jobs. I talked to a buddy of mine who runs, basically runs one of the um, the uh, big four consulting firms out of Chicago. And I asked him about job retention. He goes, we had to worry so much about job retention before, but over the last few months, we, we don't worry as much because these kids don't have the confidence they do. Then I see Accenture dropping 20,000 people. Um, so you mentioned that the labor market is tight, but aren't we seeing signs that it's beginning to crumble yet or no? I mean, I think there are some signs that it's it's not uh, it's not continuing to strengthen at the pace it was. But you know, if you if you look at the uh, the wage increases we're seeing around the world, pretty impressive numbers. Uh, you know, particularly coming out of the the Japanese wage negotiations, uh, just uh, the latest uh, rounds, really impressive numbers. Unions getting basically whatever they asked for, and we're seeing some of that in Europe as well. So there's this there's this battle right now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's slowing down a little bit, and maybe that'll eventually lead to weaker rents, which will help to bring down overall inflation, but that's that's a while for now. It just takes a while for this to really work through. Sure, this banking stress could maybe accelerate it, but we're coming from a real position of strength in the labor market and in housing, and it just could take a long time for inflation to come down, I think. So you mentioned a second ago about how stock market tends to like when we are in an easing cycle and when money's being pumped in, that's obvious. Is that depressing at all that it seems to me that over the last 10 years specifically, but maybe even longer than that, more broadly, that the most important thing to drive equity prices seems to be Fed liquidity. Is it still the case? And is it the wrong place to be in? Um, 
I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a bit frustrating, sure, to see so much of a focus on that. But when you're talking about just unbelievable amounts of stimulus, uh, particularly in the last couple of years, I, I suppose it's understandable in that it leaks into the financial markets. Financial markets are like a liquidity reservoir, right? When when you've got an abundance of it, it just flows into those markets. And then when it's needed again, it, it, it comes pouring right back out again, as we saw in 08 and 09. So uh, that's where we're at. Now, I don't think we're, we're likely to see the kind of tightening, despite the move in rates and, and this concern about the banking crisis, likely to see any kind of need for liquidity being drawn out of the markets like we saw back during the great financial crisis. Nevertheless, I think it creates an environment of volatility. Yeah, we've got factors driving things up, but one's pulling things down as well. You know, each of the last 10 months, I think stocks have gone up or down 5% every month. Maybe February is the exception to that. But think about that. Fiber to the upside, fiber to the downside. I don't think that volatility is going away anytime soon. You know, you mentioned volatility, uh, JTOP. When you look at the... <laughs> 10-year note, I mean, 11 straight days of settlements plus or minus 10 basis points or more until today. Today was the first day you actually took some of that volatility out. I, I don't know that I've seen that in a two-year note ever. I can't think of a time. But referencing, like, I, I'm listening to you talk about this stuff, and I'm trying to figure out if you think that Christine Lagarde and Jerome Powell, and for the life of me, I don't know who runs the Bank of England after Andrew Bailey, um, did they make a mistake? You know, the head, MUFG's head of U.S. macro strategy, and I can't say his name. I, I'm going to butcher it. It's John Gun Calves or something like that. It's literally G-O-N Calves, like on your legs. I don't know how to pronounce that. Anyway, he said that this could be a trichet moment. So I'm trying to understand, for people watching who don't know what a trichet moment was, Jean-Claude Trichet was the head of the ECB. And he hiked rates right before the great financial crisis, like literally days before everything went to hell. So I'm trying to understand if you think these central bankers made a mistake, you don't think they made a mistake, or you think there's enough leeway that it still remains to be seen. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think that they've uh, come pretty far in a very short amount of time, and, and there will likely be more fallout from that. But they had to. Uh, I, I mean, something needs to move here. Obviously, fiscal policy around the world is not moving back into anything close to austerity. Look at Europe. For 10 years, there was austerity imposed by Germany uh, on Italy, on Greece. This is just not happening anymore. Even Germany's running budget deficits now. So this is something that the, there's only one lever to pull back on, uh, to try to pull back on inflation, and that's through the monetary policy channel. And so they're attempting to do that. I think that the consequence is that um, you, you've got rates higher for longer. I think the idea they're going to need to quickly turn around and cut, I think inflation is just gonna, going to remain stubbornly high. And again, it's, it's a period of volatility. You know, one of the things that, I, that really worked in the last cycle were long duration stocks. And I think we moved into a short duration stock environment. You've got to focus on companies with really good short-term cash flow and very strong balance sheets because the, 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 ability to take advantage of, of a long duration cash flow situation and, and, a, and a balance sheet that's very dependent on, on borrowing is just not going to be there for some time. And I think many investors are going to miss this. They're focused on the last three, five, 10 year returns when they go to invest and they're missing. We're an entirely different regime, short duration over long duration. And I think as a result, you know, uh, international stocks over U.S. stocks, they outperformed last year, outperforming so far this year, many of those short duration equities outside the U.S. The U.S. really behaves like a big tech index. 
Jeffrey, for those of us, because some people watch our um, show, you know, because we sometimes have pop culture guests, we usually have traders, but can you explain to them what short duration stocks and long duration stocks are? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm going to get too technical there. The idea is pretty simple. If you've got a lot of cash flow in the near term, you're short duration, right? We often think about du duration in in, uh, in bonds, right? So if your if your interest payments are way out in the future, it's a long duration bond. If you've got them all focused in the near term, it's short duration. Same thing on cash flow. If your business with, generates a lot of near term cash flow, you're a short duration business, and therefore your stock behaves in a short duration way. If all your cash flow is out in the future, you're a growth stock. You maybe you got losses now. You've got big hopes for the future. That's a long duration equity, and that worked great from 2009 to 2020 because it there was so much liquidity. It was so cheap to borrow and really drive that long term growth. You really didn't need to generate the cash flow. Totally different environment now. I think it's going to be with us for some time. And and those of you listening too, I didn't ask that question for me to learn what they were because of course I of course I knew what they were. No, and thank you for that, by the way, too. You mentioned the government before too and said we we're miles away from austerity. Just we have France, they try to raise the social security age by two years and all of a sudden Paris is burning if we're to believe what we see. Um, when you look at our own government, I'm not trying to get you to say anything that will get you in trouble with any government agencies, but we are here to comment on macroeconomic policy, and that's part of your job as well, too. When you see some of the steps they've taken in the last two years, I, I find it very, very frustrating because it almost seems to me like they don't give a crap about inflation and they don't mind if they uh, unleash policies in us that fuel it even further. Um, is there some frustration that stands with you? Do you think the federal government could be doing more as far as regulatory uh, uh, positions go as far as spending bills, direct payments to people, things like that. I mean, the budget situation is unsustainable, but the question is when when do we hit a wall? You know, I looked at Japan. Japan's got way more debt relative to GDP than the US does. And I thought I'd started to see cracks there, right? With yield curve control seemingly melting down their ability to contain yields uh, within a very narrow range of zero so they can afford all this debt started to take a toll on their currency but it's come back. So I don't know. Usually the pressure release valve when we're just spending too darn much is through the currency. And the dollar, I think, is probably at or near a peak. It's probably headed to a longer term decline, not a dramatic one, two, three percent a year or so in this cycle. But that's, I think, the gauge we need to, to watch out for. When the currency begins to fall more dramatically, that's a clear sign that the market has simply had enough of U.S. borrowing at an unsustainable pace. And it still seems like we're not there. Jeff, do you think there's any way that inflation comes down where the Fed needs it to come down to prior to a recession? And the reason I ask that is because in some of the basic research that we did, uh, we all three of us know stocks can go up during a recession. We all three know that when there's inflation, asset values rise, right? Houses go up, stocks go up, gold goes up, right? When it's all asset inflation, we all love asset inflation. We hate price inflation. But the time where stocks specifically struggle is when there's a bad economy and inflation is present. So I, that's what I worry about for the consumer more than anything. I mean, I, Jim and I have this running thing where I don't want to bash the Fed anymore. I'm bored with it. And he's like, no, bash him. I hate him. I right. love bashing the Fed. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just like bored with it. I mean, it's like they have this dual mandate, speaking specifically about the FOMC, right? They have this dual mandate. And we've got basically full employment. So why shouldn't they be hammering uh, inflation? you got to crack some eggs to bring, make an omelet, right? So from that perspective, do you think there's a possibility that inflation could come down, I don't know, three and a half percent? 
in the midst of a recession to where stocks can actually uh, bottom in a healthy way and then actually make a run toward new highs to make everybody happy again? Well, the conditions would be pretty ugly, right? In order to get inflation tamed that quickly, what's the biggest holdout on, on inflation coming down? It's, it's housing. Uh, and, and the way we measure it in the U.S. is, uh, you know, is these sort of owner equivalent rents. So you really got to get this perception of, of housing to, to crash. That's not going to feel good to anybody. Uh, if you take a look at the China's reopening, I mean, that's a driver now, I think, of, of the return of maybe some commodity pressure, although we're not seeing it in oil, but we are seeing it in some other places. Uh, that would need to turn around sharply, a return to zero COVID lockdowns. That's not good for global growth. So I think, yeah, I mean, you could see a picture where a lot of these recent drivers of, of better economic growth and, and demand, like a more mild winter in Europe, uh, muting the impact of the Russian-Ukraine war, were that to turn around again, unseasonably uh, wild weather uh, that would result in, in greater natural gas consumption and really pull back that economy, resulting in mandatory uh, cutbacks in uh, in consumption. Yeah, all those scenarios are pretty ugly. I think it would take something like that to really restrain inflation from where we are now to get it anywhere close to 2% by year end. So Jeff, when you mentioned copper before and you mentioned metals, you're, you're comfortable talking about metals and, and the, uh, you know, the miners and things like that. I assume that's part of your peer review as well. You mentioned China's twice too. So the China reopening, is this finally what we're getting now? Is that what's being reflected in copper? And there's a reason I mentioned this too, that's a little more self-serving for the last, since October, I've been beating the copper drum. I gave a speech in New Orleans and you know how you get to that point where once you say it's your thing, it's like you become its greatest cheerleader as well. So that's where I am in this too. Um, do you like do you like this the story surrounding copper, particularly as it relates to China and maybe entering a next easing cycle? I do. I, you know, China is the most challenging thing I spend my time trying to understand for, for a couple of decades. It's just so difficult to read. But I think the signals are clear, and they've been for some time, that China is very pro-growth, at least this year. Uh, when you take a look at uh, their initiatives towards the housing market, they are very supportive. The recent cut in, in the, uh, uh, the bank reserve ratios, uh, more supportive of that. Some of the comments they're making about the housing market, the, uh, a lot of the other shifts policy-wise and, and regulatory-wise are really in a direction of more building this year and really focusing on residential building as opposed to infrastructure spending. That's a real plus for copper consumption. Uh, they want to drive a lot more um, uh, 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 high-end equipment exports, uh, very copper intensive. So yeah, there's a lot going on there. I, I think that is supported for, for that, uh, that particular metal. And I think in general, you're going to see that across a lot of the other base metals as well. China's reopening historically has probably been more metal intensive than it will be this time. But nevertheless, it's still a key part of that. And I think the markets are still underappreciating how rapid China's reopening is. I'll just give you a couple of numbers. The box office numbers are true. I don't trust a lot of uh, Chinese government-based data, but I can tell you that if you look at box office numbers, if you look at air pollution done by US EPA tests at the consulate around China, absolutely soaring in terms of uh, manufacturing and, and travel output. You look at the international flights that are being booked in and out of China, record highs. So just uh, some of these incredible numbers we're seeing in terms of the velocity of the rebound here, I think it's being underappreciated in markets. So, so um, that by the way, that's where you tune into the, the Futures Edge podcast, because that's the value-added shit we're talking about, how to measure China without looking at their bullshit numbers. Thank you for that, Jeffrey. Also, the, the story on copper, too, that I think domestically is even if we start to go into recession or recessionary-type 
you know, characteristics. There's still this evolution of copper decarbonization moving towards you know, the green economy. So it, it, we could even still see increase for demand for copper, even if we start to slow down, correct? That's huge. And, and I think another thing being under anticipated, uh, under expected, under, what's the word? Uh, just huge numbers. It's Friday here. afternoon. Just look, throw whatever word you want. Yeah. It's, being, words it's not so being hard. fucking counted. That's what we say. Right. It's not being fucking counted. Go ahead. That works. Yeah. That works. Hashtag yeah. not being counted. So uh, this is incredible. If you take a look at even in Europe, what they're spending on, on these, these green tech initiatives and sort of the, the re-electrification of everything, it's absolutely amazing the amount of money. I actually think the bubble of this cycle could be in that type of thing where you've got absolutely so much money, government money currently being poured in. You've got these, what used to be long duration stocks in, in the green space, really becoming short duration stocks because the, the amount of money that's pouring in, they eventually get over their skis maybe five, 10 years from now. But I think, yeah, that's a huge driver. And, and one of the other things uh, the market's not, not spending as much time on. So you are confident in China's reopening. I've been looking at China's reopening kind of like George Foreman's comeback. Like, yeah, he's winning, but it's not the old George Foreman. I mean, China, it's been so slow. We've all been anticipating this sort of, I'm a crude oil guy, right? That's what I trade more than anything else. And I keep waiting for that increase. Even OPEC expects their demand to increase by 2.3% next year, but they threw a caveat in there that it hasn't started yet. And they're worried about the demand side of things. So are you confident that they're gonna get back to past China economic glory? So, uh, I mean, I think they, they hoarded a lot of, of energy during the downturn, right? Because their, their imports were still pretty good, even though no one was traveling anywhere. So I think they're working down some inventories there and it's totally opaque. I don't know how much they've got. I don't know where it is, uh, but I think they're working that down. It's like the old copper inventory. How much copper inventory is there in China? Well, yeah, right. That's a really difficult thing to get your, get your arms around, right? So same kind of thing. I think eventually that will catch up. Right now, we know there are issues with tankers, right? The, the ability to, the cost to ship oil from Russia to China has absolutely soared, similar to what we saw with container ships shipping to California back during the, the shortages of 2021. So I, I, I know there's a tremendous amount of demand. I think the Chinese recognize that there's going to be a catch-up period here where prices are probably going to leap uh, as they begin to catch up. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see uh, you know, oil over 80 bucks uh, real soon uh, on, on, on what's driving this because we can see it in road traffic. We can definitely see it in air traffic. And we know there's just a lot of movement going on. So yeah, I think that's eventually going to catch up once they've worked down these inventories. So Jeff, we, we've had on this show, we've had Belina Chekarova, who owns a global consultancy. And I'd like to say your name. That's one of the reasons I always bring up because it's a fun <laughs> name to say. We have uh, Cameron Dawson, Emma Muehlman, all of, several of them alluded to uh, moving global supply chains from a China focus to an India focus. Can you speak to that? Is that something that takes 10 years? Is that something that takes 30 years? Are you looking at the investment potential from that potential move? I'm looking at it. So one way we can trace some of this stuff is to take a look at the international product codes and see, for example, what the U.S. Uh, imports from China and then how that may have shifted, you know, how our volumes are shifting of that same product code from India versus China. And they really haven't changed all that much. So uh, and same, same thing's true for uh, many different categories. So I think what we're seeing is maybe redundant supply chains rather than replaced supply chains, uh, as far as I can tell. So India is still in the early stages of becoming a manufacturing country. It's very service-based, very internally focused. 
And it's very hard to get a logistical supply chain through India. We all know, you know, just even through the legacy of just how bad the, the road and rail structure is there. Now with drones, there's some opportunity to be able to move things through the air a little bit more easily and create some supply chains. So I think it's going to pick up, but that could take a long time to see India pick up uh, a lot of those uh, particular product categories that China had been so strong and far more likely that they go to Vietnam and Cambodia and Chile and a few other places. And India just moves very slowly in that direction of manufacturing. So Jeff, I bring this up to a lot of people. We have Michael Farr on the podcast and uh, we're doing a lot of name dropping in this particular podcast, but- What we do. Farr, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Michael Farr uh, came up with Jerome Powell. And I've told this story probably the last three podcasts in a row, but he said it on the podcast. So he told us that Jerome Powell was the guy when they were coming up that they would all joke around. Jerome Powell would be banging his head on a concrete wall, trying to break through the wall. And they'd say, come on, Jerome, you know, we're Jay, we're going to the bar. Let's go. And he'd be, no, no, no I got to get this done. They'd come back six months later and he'd still be banging his head on that brick wall. Just in other words, when he says he's going to do something, he'll die trying to do it. So that's kind of why I brought up the Trichet moment before. Do you think, I want to word this right. I, Jimmy doesn't think they have the balls to hold rates where they are. And I think he might be right. Um, I don't look at the markets, what the market is pricing in is correct. Because 14 days ago, it was a 50 basis point rate hike and no moves until November, right? And now it's shifted into a rate cut regime. Uh, Jerome Powell even said in his statement and in the press conference, I don't see us cutting rates this year. What do you see on the horizon um, that might back him up and also that might kind of fly in his face? Well, you know, I've talked about these waves of inflation that I'm expecting and, uh, and for many different reasons. I think over the course of this year, we're going to see some ups and downs there. It, trending lower, maybe, but still way too stubbornly high for anyone to really believe that we're going to be be seeing cuts that said you know could this uh financial uh could a crisis at a few banks turn into a banking crisis and turn things down more sharply that they would need to in the end you can try and separate financial stability from monetary policy but in the end game they're the same and so if we get to the end game then ultimately they do have to cut rates and probably do so aggressively I I'm, I'm think that's a lower probability scenario than inflation remaining stubbornly high and we shifting from a financial stability concern back to inflation concerns later on. I think it's data dependent. I mean, I think I don't think the Fed knows what they're going to be doing. I, I certainly don't think the market knows what they're going to be doing. And, and, and I, I think the inflation environment, a little bit more predictable and likely to be too stubborn to allow them to, uh, to move in that direction. So, so the, the Fed fund futures curve says 100 base points of easing by the end of the year. You 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 disregard that? You think that that's that's bullshit? You know, I, I'm not our, our Fed watcher here at, at Schwab. That's uh, Liz Ann Saunders or Kathy Jones who cover the oh, US yeah. in more we, detail. She's but great. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we, we collectively, I think we're we're of the belief that no, uh, very unlikely to see uh, rate cuts this year. Bobby, you got anything? Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up Liz Ann because she's kind of my Zen master. I use her tweets. I mean, we don't know each other. But I use her tweets at like dinner parties and, and gatherings to make people think that I'm way smarter than I am. For example, she recently tweeted that, this is kind of a weird question, dude, but she recently tweeted that the statements have started shrinking in word count, that the peak word count in the Fed official statements were Bernanke and Yellen, and now they're going down. Hold on, what do you mean? No, what's that? Well, the, 
the amount of word, words that they're saying. The amount, oh, of, the words. amount of words that they're saying. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, do I have it here? I, I got the printed out Fed statement on my desk somewhere amongst all these other papers. And I was highlighting words and I'm looking and I'm looking, an hour and a half. I'm like, what does she mean? What does she mean by that? What can, what is Schwab not allowing her to tell us that she knows? Do you guys like go off later in rooms and go, okay, so here's what that means. And it's just stuff you can't say. Um, you can't we spent a lot of time talking. I, I think we spent a lot of time <laughs> communicating. Look, I, you know, it, one thing that's interesting is, is you used to have more dissensions with more words. So I guess the less you say, the more everybody agrees. I don't know. I think this is a tough time to get everybody on the same page. So I, I remember I used to talk with Bill Poole, you know, old uh, Fed, uh, uh, Bill. St. Louis head. And, and, you know, he used to talk about how they would craft a statement and how everybody you know, kind of sat there and did a little bit of wordsmithing. And it was far easier to delete a sentence than edit a sentence. <laughs> that might be true Interesting. now. All right. So putting all that aside, um, banking leads us out of recessions a lot, assuming that we're going to go into one. And if we do, there's a high probability that a regional to small banking crisis helped push us in there. Um, is the playbook going to be altered, do you think? There's a lot of ifs in there. Um, or is it know, going to be tech? Is it always tech now? And that's it. Well, I, much quicker to respond this time to stresses in the banking system than we were the last time or even back in, in the savings and loan crisis. So I, I'm hoping that uh, whatever fallout there is fairly limited. I think, uh, you know, it might be private markets. You know, there's so much... Um, sort of shadow banking going on and the private equity markets that are pretty overly levered uh, and, uh, and very subject to sort of the whims of credit availability. And they've swung in the opposite direction we haven't seen since prior to the, well, since during the great financial crisis. So I do worry a little bit about some of these connections to the non-traditional um, finance world, the, the shadow banks and the like, uh, spilling over into the real world. It's not as much leverage as there used to be, but you know, there's still a lot of businesses dependent upon private financing, and that could be the fallout this time around. So my question is this, that over the last week, Credit Suisse has shown up in the headlines, Deutsche Bank showed up in the headlines. It's literally, you look at their 15-year chart, all it is is straight freaking down. Why am I supposed to give a shit that those two banks who've had a stock price that's just been heading into the dirt for so long are the ones that are showing up with the crisis? Aren't those two banks that have shown us that they're poorly run for forever? Or can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're the weakest links in the chain. I mean, they've certainly had well-publicized problems that go back uh, in particular uh, to, to the great financial crisis, the, the, debt, the debt problems uh, of, of 2011, and then, of course, more recently, 2019 through 2021 with uh, Archegos and, and so many other things. But overall, yeah, you're right. Overall, European banks have a much better... <laughs> position in any way you want to measure it than those than those two or three. I mean, there's, I don't know, Unicredit as well, maybe Sockton. There's a few other sort of problem children banks out there when we look to Europe. But most, first of all, most credit in many of the countries uh, in Europe is provided by uh, land banks or community banks and not by these big institutional, uh, you know, um, uh, investment banks. And so credit in, unlikely to tighten as much just because of the nature of how things set up. They've got much better, the overall banking system is much, much more liquid than here in the U.S. They never took their 
their eyes off the ball. They didn't. Mid-sized banks in Europe are examined and subject to stress tests. Unlike how we rolled that back here in the U.S., they've got much better credit ratios. They actually did a pre-bailout with these TLTROs, the targeted long-term refinancing operations, essentially were free money from the European Central Bank into the banking system over the last year or so, really since 2019. And that's really helped widen their margins and kind of given them a backstop that's very similar to what the Fed just put in place here for banks in the U.S. So I, the overall banking system, far, far, far better shape, I think, than it's given credit for. These, these headline names like Deutsche and, and uh, uh, Credit Suisse and some of the others, yeah, they're really not representative of what's going on. So I sometimes I make it a point when I someone like you who I have tremendous respect for, but you're 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 not as mean and angry, and you're you're a nice, compassionate person who's very very even keeled. So I try to get you to be pissed about something. So let's talk about Silicon Valley Bank for a second too. And I I, I it was fun. The headlines that were fun about all the different causes they had been donating to, all the different uh, woke bullshit from the uh, you know the California clientele. Do you honestly think? that that has anything to do with their mismanagement and their failure to hedge their bond portfolio? Or do you think that's just romantic seduction to bring in conspiracy theorists like me? <laughs> I mean, I think yeah. community reinvestment <laughs> is, is something that, you know, these lenders engage in and, and, you know, there's different ways in which they all do that. I, I think, you know, the bottom line is, is a massive duration mismatch. That's always seems to be the case with these issues. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of a separate issue. I would say that uh, there are um, there are so many banks uh, in the U.S. and uh, you know, so many of them are managed completely differently. I mean, SBB, you know, you take a look at it almost in any chart you want to plot it on. It's sort of it's just a crazy outlier. I think what bothers me is that things weren't tightened up, that we were allowing a lot of these mid-sized banks to not be subject to stress tests, not be subject to LQR and a bunch of other uh, liquidity ratios that really would have helped here and rein in some of their behavior. And why did we give them, a, who was supposed to be watching this to say, hey, should we re-examine the 16th largest bank in the US equivalent to 1% of GDP in its assets? Maybe we ought to take a look here. You know, it bothers me that that gets a pass. It bothers me that we, don't actually the focus becomes on these broad regulations that had nothing to do with SVB, and we don't actually tweak regulations so they can match their long duration assets that are not for sale against hedges and not have to see their balance sheet go like this which affects their stock which affects their bonuses i digress question about the two-year note and its relationship to everything uh march 7th to i think march 10th we had the two-year notes settle above 5%, those three or four days, and then it collapsed. Last two times we had the two-year note this high, 2007, we know what happened after that. And if you have a two-year two -year note chart, it goes like this prior to stocks collapsing. Time before that, 2001, we know what happened then, although stocks kind of led the two-year down in that particular line. My curve fitting or is there something there? Well, I think um, you know there's two two pieces that are going to drive the the two year yield in terms of the near term economic outlook and the and the inflation picture. And I think the inflation picture is, well, maybe it's similar to 07, right? Because we certainly had a big surge in inflation then as well. But I think to some extent, uh, yields being where they are, they're not as tight on a real basis as they might have been back in the last few times when we saw this kind of a move. So it's still not good news to see that kind of a move in the two year. It it's clearly speaks to an imbalance in the overall economic picture, right? It's why we have an inverted yield curve and why that's been such a successful signal for 50 plus years. But 
maybe it's a little not as intense. You know, we've got 92% of the yield curve inverted. That's the way I like to look at it. I look at every single short to long maturity and I spread them. There's 91 different ways you can spread it. 92% of them are inverted. That's equivalent to some of the you know worst periods of recession in the past. But what's slightly different maybe is the, the inflation outlook and that might mitigate some of the real impact of, of what we're seeing in the two year. So what I, I've been ranting about the SBP thing because literally it would take guys like Bobby and I 10 minutes to have hedged their long-term bond portfolio. You know, it's what we've done for many, many years. It's not, it, it's, it is so completely easy to do, you know? So my question is this, I guess, is that are we to believe that there's many other banks that didn't see the signals, didn't hedge their long-term, because I do it for a lot of banks. You buy a 10, 10 year put spread, it's easy as hell. Um, are, is this a systemic thing or is this just idiosyncratic of a certain couple moronic players that mismanage their portfolios? We don't know. That's a big problem. We don't know how much, uh, how, ma how many, uh, uh, how much of this exposure has been swapped by 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 these banks. We know that in Europe, that's a very common thing to do. You're dealing with a, a German bank, an Italian depositor. You just you got you got to hedge constantly. They hedge pretty much all their interest rate risk. In the U.S., it's not as much a part of what they do, and. Bonds are a bigger part of the assets of banks than they are in Europe and elsewhere. We have a greater transparency, I think, in Europe. We just don't know. We know what their exposure is. We don't know how much it's been hedged. And that's something that's never really caught up in terms of regulation so that we can get a good read on that on, a, on an even quarterly basis. Uh, we, you know, we, get, we get these quarterly reports from the FDIC. They really don't get into that. And so it's a little bit of an unknown. So just a quick little aside, too. I had uh, Royal Bank of Canada was a client of mine for many, many years, but it's been about 10 years. So I think I can actually speak to it. But it was so funny because they had such tight risk controls. And the guys I talked to to manage the risk, like it literally be a thing that couldn't possibly happen. There'd be an unemployment number come out and the phone would ring and I'd pick it up and be like, I love your risk manager because he's about to make you do a 20,000 lot trade with me that you're going to just pay away a tick and just to have your insurance on. So I don't know if they still have a reputation of being one. We might have lost them. They'll do, but they certainly were. My question, though, to you, though, to, to get away from that for a second, is that you look at the next five years, your investment is your investment strategy. What sectors do you think will do well in the environment that you perceive? So when I when we think about investing right now, we have shied away from talking about sectors because you know you look over the last year, what's it been? Energy. There's there's been not a whole lot of breadth in terms of sector outperformance. Again, focusing on the characteristics rather than sectors, and that's where I get to the short duration theme. When I look at the bottom twenty percent of companies ranked by price to free cash flow, uh, I can find stocks in every sector. But those stocks in every sector are the ones that are outperforming in those sectors. So that's what I've been focused on. Where can you find? I mean, there's more of them in, in value-oriented sectors because it's a value characteristic, right? So I think value likely to outperform growth. And I think, again, you see it internationally more than in the U.S. International benchmarks have more in financials and energy and other short-duration stocks than what you find in the U.S., which is more tech and healthcare dominated. So I think we turn this cycle and we're flipping back to an environment uh, that we had uh, maybe back in, in the early 2000s where we had outperformance by short duration and international equities. And again, this is gonna put you in a value box as opposed to growth. Jeff, do you guys ever look at the age of the C-suite? And here's why I asked that. I don't, oh God, probably an ageism question, I'm sorry. No, I, I just, I was looking recently at an article and I don't know the validity of the statistic, but I'm gonna say it with that caveat in there, with that disclaimer. 
that said 37% of S&P 500 see, uh, chief investment officers or chief, chief financial officers are 40 and under. And when I looked at that, I thought to myself, well, there were 20 the last time money had a cost. And then Bridgewater has now a 37-year-old co-chief investment officer, and this particular person was 17 the last time money had a cost to it. And I wonder if that matters. Is that ever something you guys look at? I mean, you obviously, if you're, if you're gonna recommend something, you look at the makeup of the C-suite to a certain degree. Um, I you gotta know, say, I haven't really thought much about that. Uh, it's an interesting thought. The, the, you know, I mean, I suppose there's institutional memory in, in a lot of these firms that have, you know, uh, gone through these environments. I mean, many of these companies have been around a long time. Some haven't though. I mean, right, you're talking about not just the age of the, the, uh, the CEOs and the CFOs, but the age of the companies themselves. How long have they been public entities? Uh, many of these stocks that, uh, you know, make up uh, a big share of the market cap weighted indices are pretty young as well. So interesting thought. Would I be wrong in saying that there might be a correlation between short duration and the age of the company? Not something I've ever looked at, but I would guess a company that makes money probably is a little more well-established. Probably, yeah, there probably is a connection to that. That's interesting. Certainly, would you know, their balance sheets are likely to be more cash-rich. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I would say there probably is a correlation. You guys can hire us as consultants at Schwab, too. We're expensive, <laughs> but we're worth it. We give you shit like that. So. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah. Brilliant yeah. ideas here. Okay, good. Uh, what else, Bobby? What else do you want to talk about hit before we... Uh, yeah, I got one last thing for you and, and understanding that you're not the Fed watcher, but maybe you can like throw this out to, to uh, Ms. Jones and, and Ms. Uh, Saunders. What do you guys feel, not as a firm, but individually, so I'm only asking you about an automatic tailor rule. If the Fed were only responsible for liquidity uh, crises and regulation, which set an automatic tailor rule. Is that something you see as doable, smart, stupid? How do you feel about that? Uh, I don't know. I, I tell you, it, it, there's, I'm not sure there's a central bank around the world that's figured how to, out how to do any of this stuff. I, I think the real purpose of, of what they, you know, I remember I was on, uh, I was at an event, this is years ago now, and on stage, uh, Yellen was, was, was chair at the time, Bernanke was on stage, Greenspan, and actually Greenspan was there by video and Volcker, they were all there. And, and the question was, um, you know, how good do you think you are at doing your job? And, and Jenny Allen gave, you know, she was chair at the time and just, you know, gave, gave a very boilerplate answer. Bernanke said that word for word. Greenspan kind of went off on something. I can't remember what productivity stats or something. And Shocking. Volker, who wasn't even looking at them, he was, he was, he was, <laughs> he was facing the other direction, staring off into space. He turned around and said, look, we had recessions and inflation before the Fed. We'll have recessions and inflation after the Fed. We're here to just try and clean up the mess. And I thought that's probably the best role for a central bank to let things happen as they need to happen and then provide liquidity when it's necessary. Yeah, so I, I they can I, clean up messes they've caused. They're pretty good <laughs> at that, but go ahead. That's what, no, so okay, big name dropping about to happen here. So two weeks ago, I was on with Larry on his on his Fox Business show, and right before me was was Taylor of the Taylor Rule, and they were discussing. It. And then I came on afterwards, and Larry asked me to to comment on what John Taylor had said. And I said it's not a comfortable position for me to be disagreeing with him, but here's what I think he's missing, and I want both you guys to comment on this, uh, Jeffy. First, I said here's what he's missing is that for literally for thirty years you can map it out, but I believe there's this unholy 
um, relationship between the Federal Reserve and the federal government, you know, starting in bankly back in the 80s, where um, inflation was broken, uh, the interest rates went down, companies started making a lot of money, the government started instituting more taxes, more regulations, because they get jealous of it. So rates go down again, more taxes, more regulations, rates go down again. And if you look at, you know, every measure of rates from the 90s to now, uh, went down straight down. So my point is that I don't believe our economy broadly can exist and function as we hope it would if rates are left to go organically, which then condemns us to this low rates, build up, bust, uh, you know, as rates try to adjust, low rates again. Am I onto something here? And I thought John Taylor's wrong. We can't go to 6% in the Fed funds. Everything will break apart and quickly. Yeah, that's right. So, so we're in a box on rates, and that's where I see you know the pressure release valve as the currency. So what happens when the dollar begins to reflect some of this stuff and begins to progress down at a, at a material pace? Uh, that'll be interesting to see. Obviously, it means higher inflation. It, it's definitely an economic drag. So uh, yeah, it, 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 that's one of the that's the big long term question. How do we get to anything that would seem like a normal interest rate when we've got this much leverage into the financial system? I don't see it. But- and Bobby, what I'm saying is that the equation has changed. Do you agree with that? I do. I do think it's it's changed. I think it's pretty complex at this point. It, my my curiosity falls to, okay, so we had inflation at 2.8 percent, and the Fed said it's transitory, and then it went to four, and they said it's still transitory. Then it went to nine, and they said maybe it's not so transitory. And at that point, the Taylor rule, an automatic Taylor rule, would have been slowly rising. Um, the Fed funds rate up the whole time. Now, I'm not, I have no idea if it would work or not. I didn't know if the vaccines would work or not either. But there's always these experiments that go on. So I think about it from that perspective. Jeff, I'm a, I'm a big fan of self-driving cars. I can't wait till they happen. And a lot of people are like, oh, I wouldn't trust a computer to drive a car. Well, I trust a rice cooker to make my rice better than I can. And, you know, there's all these things that I think the human race can look at things and say, okay, a self-driving car will probably have fewer drunk driving accidents than humans will. And so everywhere I think that an automatic system might work, I mean, I would just like to see it, see them try it. And then just leave the Fed there to see, okay, SVB needs money, no problem, let's figure that out. Or, you know, we need TARP, we never needed TARP, but whatever. You know, taking care of these messes that happen that they're not necessarily partially responsible for. So I don't know. I mean, I agree, Jimmy, that it's changed. It's definitely a more complex relationship, but I think they're part of the reason it's become more complex. But also, before Jeff answers, though, part of the whole Taylor Rule thing is that CPI is not a bullshit indicator and is actually giving us the real story. No, well, can we give, have any I'm sorry, can we, can we compare it to PCE, which also may be bullshit, but that's like, I, we always hear people talk about CPI and the Fed constantly talks about PCE and I'm wondering why we still talk about it. Yeah, it, it, I mean, inflation is, is, is yeah. Uh, look, I, this is a should question. It should just not in my vocabulary. I'm not a policymaker. Uh, I, just, I, I think this is way too political when you're talking about policy interest rates to expect that it would be turned over to a rice cooker. I just don't see it. I, I like love that because answer. my next question was going to be, do you think the Fed's, Fed's political? So we got that answer. <laughs> okay, that's excellent. Uh, anything else you want to hit before we let you go, Jeffrey? What's your workout uh, today? No. Are you going to lift, are you going to lift weights? Are you going to run? Oh no, it's a lift. It's it's always a lift every day. It's a big lift. Yeah. Come on, so Jimmy. We'll see. I just, 
Friday, Fridays are tough, but uh, I usually do in the morning, but didn't, didn't get the opportunity. Stop yeah, that plyometrics, Jimmy. Get a hold of some weights, for God's sake. I lift weights, too. I can't keep weight on. Today, I did have a long run in the morning. I did Joe Biscopo's show at like 5.35 this morning, and I was already in the loop. So I just, I had like an hour and a half. So I basically ran for an hour, but then I hit the bag for a while. So I did do some tough guy shit, too, because, you know, hitting the bag's cool, right? You might not be able to keep weight on because you're running 46 miles a day, for God's sake. Good. Could be, could be, right? All right, Jeffrey, thank you so much for being here. I uh, I hope you had fun. We My pleasure. totally have fun on. picking your brain. I mean, it's it's so nice to hear, hear your thoughts on it. So thanks a lot. Yeah. Great to be with you guys. Adios, have guys. an awesome time. <laughs>